You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It's Friday, September 1st. This is The Christian Commute. I am your host, Seth Dunn. And you are riding to the tag office with me. Because my tag is, tag is expired. And I got pulled over by a state trooper this morning who noticed my tag was expired. And, mercifully, he let me go. Uh, and they're everywhere because it's Labor Day weekend. So this is, this is going to be a slow driving episode of the Christian Commute because cops will be everywhere and everybody will be driving slow on the freeway. So hopefully I can make it home again before another state trooper pulls me over. One who's not so merciful. But I've got to, I've got to get to that tag office <coughs> before it closes because I'm going to Tuscaloosa this weekend. That's right. I'm going to the Alabama game. It might be the only Alabama game I make this year. And you know what that means. You know what me going to the Alabama game means. It means it's time to bring back, bring back, Brother William from Mississippi and his Alabama pick of the week. And Brother William does not want you to gamble on this. But Brother William's Alabama pick is Bama 45, MTSU 7. I agree with the seven, but I think Alabama will kick a field goal. But uh, I'll be at the game, and I will be sure to let Brother William know as soon as I, I see a field goal. Oh, you know where I am right now in Calhoun? By the way, I'm in Calhoun because I went to lunch at Dubs because I had to leave the office because I got to go to the tag office before they close and finish working at home. I had the the... The question last week about addiction counseling, I'm by the place in Calhoun, the church that has to celebrate recovery, the place where they had the lady rolling around in the parking lot getting the demon cast out of her. <sighs> yeah, this is not abstract stuff. This is real. It's all around you. So that's what I am. That's what I'm doing. And you might be thinking, oh, no, he's leaving from Calhoun, and it's, so it's going to be a short show. Yep, you know what? There's no question in the inbox. I do not have a full show for you today. Nobody has written in. The inbox is empty. Probably that's partly my fault because I don't think I've published a show this week. I have two shows sitting on the phone. This will be the third. So, yeah, I haven't published any shows this week. I really have no excuse for not publishing Tuesday's show. I did two shows Tuesday. I did a morning show and an evening show. And then I was on the way to work Thursday, and my friend called me. He was behind me. He said, are you going to Dalton? I said, yeah. So I rode with him. So I rode with my buddy on Thursday. That's why there was no show. And why haven't I uploaded them? Well, my laptop battery was dead yesterday, and that's my excuse. It's a pretty lame one. And I've been at the soccer field a lot, which is, by the way, where I'm going to be this, this Friday night, tonight, because my Monday practice was rained out. So, apology for not uploading the shows. Kind of upset at you people because I got no questions in the inbox. I got nothing. 
That's a country song, but I'm not going to. I got nothing. I said I wasn't going to sing it, but I guess I am. No magic words. Stop this leaving in this hurt. I'm just blank. Just staring into space, saying, please, please, let me think of something. But I got nothing, and I will keep singing songs you don't want to hear. If you, This is a threat, and I'll follow through on it. If somebody doesn't send a question to SethDunn88 at gmail.com, SethDunn88 at gmail. Dot com. What is today's show topic? What is it? What is it? What is it? It is grave to cradle. Now we're talking about the youth group. I think I'll do high school and middle school in the same show. So grave to cradle, part of our continuing series of church customer relationship management and the way they put you into age groups. And our Bible chapter review comes from Matthew chapter 24. We're still in Matthew chapter 24. We're still talking about the destruction of the temple and the end times in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. And we're starting in verse 21. And where are we going to end? I don't know because I didn't write it down. So let me see. I think this is Matthew. I think I stopped in verse 23. Because, you know, on occasion, I'll forget to write down where I'm ending. And, sorry. I was at a red light, and I was going to check check on my phone. And I've got no internet. You know, you know what? When I don't need the internet, it works. When I have work to do, and... Oh, I guess I do need the internet when I'm working. But when I'm busy... And I've got stuff to do. Internet works fine. Uh, when I need to look something up real quick, need to send somebody a text message desperately, doesn't work. And it doesn't work right now. So we're Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 through, I don't know, 23. For then there will be a great tribulation. For them, well, for, for, remember, he was talking about stuff before. He was saying there's great destruction coming. Too bad if you're pregnant or nursing, leave the, just flee the field and don't go back for your, uh, for your coat. If you're on your housetop, just, just leave. Flee to the mountains. Get out of the city. Destruction's coming. He's talking about coming destruction. He says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor will ever again. And if those days had not been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, Behold, he is the Christ, or he is over here, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and provide great signs and wonders to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And that is Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 through, I don't know. Sorry. And that's a continuation of what we've been talking about. Now that word there in English that we use, tribulation, by the way, that's Strong's Greek 2347, if you want to look it up. 
You need to take this word when you're reading the Bible for what it means for them. Tribulation just means distress or persecution. Jesus is saying a distress or persecution is coming during this time he's talking about. And why, why am I bringing this up? Because when we modern evangelical Christians think of tribulation, we think of the tribulation. A specific end times event that's going to happen depending on your uh, dispensationalist beliefs if you have them pre-rapture, mid-rapture or after the rapture you've, you've heard people talk about a pre-tribulation rapture a mid-tribulation rapture and a post-tribulation rapture before and there's people with charts and arguments and the tribulation in dispensational, premillennial dispensational theology, which is what I'm more familiar with than others, is a specific time of persecution that's going to happen at the end times, <coughs> right before, like right after, during, or, or, or right before the rapture. Before Jesus comes and rest restores the kingdom and has the millennial kingdom. So people, they may read this and they think he's talking about the tribulation. To that I have to say, well maybe he is and maybe he isn't. But what Jesus is predicting here is, a, I guess I should say prophesying here because Jesus doesn't make predictions. He knows what's going to happen. When he, when, if he knows and he says, it's going to happen. Because we're going to talk about in subsequent verses what only the Father knows, but we're not there yet. There's a period of tribulation, and it's going to be horrible. So much so that people need to, to flee from it. And it's tribulation that he says is going to be, nothing's occurred like this since the beginning of the world, nor ever will again. And again, there's question, was he talking about something that's already happened? by now, by now has already happened, and so that will happen in 70 AD in later years during the Roman Empire, or is it something yet to happen that's going to immediately precede the end times? So is, is Jesus talking about something that happened in the first century already, or is Jesus talking about something that hasn't happened yet? Well, the thing that hasn't happened yet, as we know, is Jesus hasn't come back yet. And there is going to be some kind of distress that goes along with that. So the question for us is, is this a part of that? Or is this something that's already happened? Now we know there was intense persecution of the early church in the Roman times and even in the times of Acts. And we still see some of that today, so people might read that and they say, well, this is, what he's talking about is so horrible that it's never happened before. And bad persecutions that already happened then and have already happened all throughout time. So that may color someone's reading of this. And what's interesting, he says here, and he's, he's speaking in the historical present, he says, and if those days had not been cut short, no life would have been saved. Those days haven't even happened yet. It's just interesting to me that he's talking in the historical present. And it makes me think that he's talking that way because he's going to reference Noah later. We'll get to that when we get to that. And why are they cut short? And it's for the sake of the elect. 
So who has who's being persecuted here? Is it everyone? Was it everyone? Is it just a distress of everyone, or is it a persecution of the elect? Now we know in the destruction of the Jerusalem, it didn't matter if you were Jew or Christian, you were getting destroyed by Titus and his forces. And that's how a lot of wars and disasters and famines, famines and wars don't usually discriminate based on your religious preference. But he says, for the sake of the elect, those days will cut short. So it will be cut short. So even during this time, God is still looking out for his elect. Because he has a purpose for his elect. Now sometimes Christians are killed in these horrible events, whether it be persecution, war, or famine. But as a whole, the elect always remain as a witness for Christ to do our good work that he has for us. And what's interesting here is he goes back once again to the warning and he says false prophets are going to arise and, and make these false prophecies and mislead people. And they're going to perform wonders that mislead people. And deceive, if possible, he says, even the elect. And during this time of tribulation, people are going to say, Behold, here is the Christ, or he's over here. But he's not going to be. Christ isn't coming back during this period, but people are going to be nervous and looking for him to come back. Here's the warning that Jesus is giving. He's telling these people there are bad and tumultuous times to come. Some of them, undeniably, within the generation of the people who are hearing his voice that he's talking to. Because later he says, this generation will not pass away until these things happen. When the scubalon goes down, when the bad stuff starts to happen, people are going to think, oh, here's Jesus come to save us. And Jesus is saying, no! Watch out for these false people who are saying the Christ is back. Because you have to understand the people then, they're not going through such a hard time, such a tribulation as is being explained here, but they're looking for the Messiah, and they're looking for a specific kind of deliverance from the Messiah. And immediately in the mind of the reader, just remember he just had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and they're saying, Hosanna, save us now, Hosanna, save us now. And they don't get the Messiah action that they expected from him. Dying on the cross wasn't the Messiah action that they expected. And here in this predicted or prophesied tribulation, people are expecting Messiah action, Savior action. And because they, because they know that, these false prophets are going to say, oh, here's the Messiah over here, here's a Christ over here. And they're going to be trying to deceive people in the midst of all this chaos. And Jesus is saying in the midst of all this chaos... Don't be deceived. And he's trying to give people a message of what to expect. We'll expound on that further in the next Bible chapter review. This is the end of the Bible chapter review, but let me tack a little something on. Because this show is supposed to be about apologetics. All right. Remember, I have a master's in that. Remember that. Remember when I started doing the show? I'm like, this is going to be a podcast about Christian apologetics. We're going to learn to defend the faith. Okay. 
This is a passage you need to be familiar with when you're dealing with skeptics, whether they be atheists or Jews or otherwise, just any kind of non-Christian who's rejecting Jesus or rejecting the scriptures. Unless you're a preterist, because then you can just say, of course, this already happened. Down at the bottom here, of the page of the Bible, if you were reading this on a page, it would say, this generation will not pass away until these things happen. So we know that that generation has passed away by now. They're gone. And they've been gone for almost 2,000 years. We also know that the end has not come yet. The, the sun and moon... The sun doesn't turn into blood and the stars don't fall from the sky. We know that hadn't happened yet. And I don't think that's some kind of abstract apocalyptic statement for something that's like a metaphor for something. I really think it's about a cosmological calamity that that goes along with the end times. But by the way, that's what somebody, some apologist might say, oh, that's, that's that's just apocalyptic language, it's abstraction. Maybe it is, but I don't think so. So, skeptics are going to read this. Pretend it's a Jewish skeptic who says, see, he's not the Christ, because he predicted that he was going to come back and rule within that generation, and then he didn't. He's just one more false messiah. And the atheists, the internet, a lot of atheists don't care, so they're not going to say anything to you, but I'm talking about the hostile internet infidel atheists. I'm sorry, stop. I've got to catch up to this bus. There is a bus on I-75 with a giant picture of Jesus on the back. At least I think it's supposed to be Jesus. Because we don't know what Jesus looked like. But I'm pretty sure this is Jesus on a bus. And I've got to see who this is. And it says... I think there's there's text on the bus. It says, I love you. So it's a, it's a big picture of Jesus that says, I love you. I got to say, like, is this a, is this a band? If, is it the people in this crazy Calhoun Prophecy Conference? That's, I've got to know. I've got to stop the show and know. What's this say? Real, no, Royal Ranch Ministries. Royal Ranch Ministries. It looks like there's a bunch of singers on the side. You are love, John 316. It's some kind of tour bus? <laughs> or no, it's a Freightliner. It's a semi. I think it's it's like a musician tour trailer with a giant picture of Jesus. I'll let you people debate whether that's a giant second commandment violation or not. Anyway, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, I'm not. I'm not even. I don't know if I want to get to the show topic. I'm almost home. Uh, uh yeah, apologetics. Yeah, that's what I'm sorry. A giant picture of Jesus distracted me, or what they think Jesus looks like. Apologetically speaking, you're going to have to answer for this because the Bible's inerrant, right? Yeah. Well, this is a clear error, isn't it? Because that generation has undeniably died, and Jesus hadn't come back. So this is where the work of explaining to someone goes into saying, well, Jesus is talking about things that are going to happen within the generation, 
and things that are going to happen later. And the quote-unquote trick, the trick is, and there shouldn't be a trick because of the, the what do you call it, the purse capacity of Scripture, our ability to understand it. Uh, there, sh- there shouldn't really be a trick to it, but the, the thing you have to do, how about this, the hermeneutical task that must be performed is to delineate between the things that are about to happen within that generation and the things that are going to happen at the end time, which doesn't necessarily, in their minds, the Bible people's minds, the people at that time, coincide. And we know from the passage of time that it doesn't coincide. And you may not be able to separate the two say the destruction of Jerusalem and all the stuff that happened before 70 AD and you might not be able to to separate to say well this is a tribulation in the future or a tribulation that's already happened and remember we're saying preterism is heresy so that's out as an apologetic okay but what you can show from the passage and probably what somebody who's not a careful reader of scripture somebody who's just looking for a problem would notice is that Jesus is talking about two different events because the apostles say to him look at all these buildings Lord and he says "Ah, not one stone is going to be left upon another and tell us when this stuff will happen they're asking about or he's, he's answering them I should say about the end times and about the destruction of those temple buildings and that's really all you have to show and then we can go back into history and say look there was a bunch of destruction. The temple was destroyed. He accurately predicted it. So, I mean, if the skeptic takes a preterist reading of this, they could say, well, all right, he did, but Jesus didn't come back. Because he says immediately. The word immediately is in here. Which, by the way, the word immediately is all over Mark. Immediately, immediately, immediately. And it does always mean, like, right that second after. So even if your eschatology is not real sharp, and mine's not real sharp, for the sake of defending the faith, you need to familiarize yourself with uh, uh, this passage. And that sounds silly because you're supposed to familiarize yourself with all of Scripture because all of Scripture is God-breathed, useful for training and teaching. But be, be prepared to explain this text because unlike other texts, it's going to be used to try and disprove the faith or dis- disprove the Bible. And it's easy to see how it would be. So just from the standpoint of apologetics, remember that. All right, let's see if I can fit in grave to cradle. Youth ministry. So we've talked about how you deal with the senior citizens. You've talked about how you deal with or how the churches have customer relationship management with the 40 to 60-year-old crowd. We've talked about how they treat the young marrieds. And we've talked about how they handle the college and career singles. That's everybody who's out of their parents' household. What about the people who are still in their parents' household? Let's talk about the youth ministry. The youth ministry is the biggest loss leader for churches. They spend money on a youth pastor and youth groups and youth activities for youths who don't really have any money. 
even think about the most faithfully tithing youth. Great, you make three hundred dollars a week. Thanks for the thirty bucks. Yeah. <clears throat> this is not getting people in for their money, but th- they have parents who have money. And I also want you to think about this historically. We have this thing in the United States called adolescence. It's sort of an already not yet thing. Where you have people who have gone through puberty. And they are physiologically adults. But their education is only halfway over. And they're not expected to go out and work. They're viewed as quote-unquote minors. We talk about people being under 18 being a minor. There's no such thing in the Bible as a minor and adult and a major. Is minor and a major, is that what you... Am I a major? I've reached the age of majority? I guess I am. There's no, there's no, there's no delineation between 18 means you're younger. Because remember, the, the Jews do a bar mitzvah at 13, right? You're a man. <coughs> so we have this thing in the United States called adolescence. Where we have... Your youth, your youths. The Bible talks about the children of your youth. But it's every youth minister's worst nightmare to have a teen pregnancy. So, as I'm, I mean, I'm not trying to say our culture's got it wrong. I'm just trying to tell you that there's no concept of adolescence in biblical times. It's a modern cultural thing. And that if Mary, Jesus' own mother, the Virgin Mary, were alive today, and by the way, she didn't keep being a virgin, if she was 15 probably, maybe even younger when the angel visited her and said, you're going to bear the Holy Spirit's child. (laughs) The Holy Spirit's going to get you pregnant and you're going to bear the Son of God. How can this be since I'm a virgin? Okay. Probably a teenager at that time. Culturally, probably at least less than 17 years old. Why? How do we know that? Because she was engaged. And it's not engaged like we think of now because we'd never think of a 13, 14, 15-year-old girl being engaged. And even today, it would be a surprise if a 17-year-old girl was engaged. With, Are you really sure this is what you're going to do with your life? Or you Take some time to think about it. You've still got to go to college yet. That's what we'd say. But at that time, you'd have a formal betrothal of somebody of that age. And if Mary was alive today, at the time she Gabriel came to her, she'd be in a youth group somewhere. So we have these youth groups dealing to people, dealing with people at a life stage, and it's a weird life stage for them. Because think about what's a major focus of a lot of youth group culture, purity culture, right? Like don't have sex. You don't really have to tell that to the kids in kids ministry they haven't gone to puberty yet or gone through puberty yet so think about the time when you first learned what sex was and started wanting to have it having the uh, urges as we say you're probably old enough to be in youth group now in ancient times you could have been married when you were 15 or 16 years old I mean, my granddaddy Jim was born in, I don't know, like the teens, I think. He lived to be 94. I think he got married when he was 17. And even take it to 18, 18 to 22. People get married. Like back in the Great Depression days, people would get married at that age. Everybody wasn't going to college. 
And I could go on a whole road about women working and feminism and abortion and wanting birth control, but I'm not. But we have this whole ministry around people. This is why it's a difficult one. Who have natural physiological urges that would not have been repressed a long time ago because they'd be out getting married and starting families at 16 years old. Maybe a little older. But now, it's especially the girls, in biblical times, 14-year-old girls pregnant, that's normal. Now, it's a public relations disaster at church. It's every it's parent's worst nightmare. Oh no, I got a teen pregnancy. But it wasn't then. So what I'm saying is, you've got sort of a ministry that revolves around treating people like they're not adults yet who have adult bodies and adult urges. Isn't that kind of strange? And we're telling people, don't have sex. You're not married. Because it is fornication to have sex. Because It is a sin. I don't care if you have a physiological urge. If you're, having, if you're 15, 17, and you're having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you're sinning because you're not married. I'm sorry you live in a society where you don't get married where you're 15 or 17. That's the society where you live. Morals don't change. That's how God set them. So you have this combustible nature of the youth. And you have parents who, oh, they're rebelling. They, they, they want, listen, more than any other time, parents want those teenagers in church. You can have parents who are like, oh, I didn't take my kid to church when they were five. I slept late. Sunday fun day. But then when their kid gets buck wild, I really wish they'd get into church. Yeah, maybe you should have took them to the nursery. They wouldn't be acting like that if you'd raised them right. But now, oh yeah, they're in a youth group. That's great. That's where they want them. There's kids right now. They're out there grounded. They did something wrong. Mom, can I go to church Wednesday? You're grounded. But it's church. Okay, you can go. So the youth group, that's a tough ministry. Because you're dealing with people who, like I said, they're combustible. They're living in a life situation they're not biologically designed for. Culture notwithstanding. They're at that age where they, you, people think, the, the teenagers, they think like they know everything. Because they want to get out on their own. They want to make their own way. But they know they're five, ten years away from that. <coughs> But like I said, you got parents who desperately want them in that. And if you can get those youth into your church, you can get those parents into your church, and then you can get that money. And I'm going to tell you this. Youth ministers know they're dealing with a lot of unregenerate people. Okay? We're going we're to talk later. When we get on to the Bible chapter review of Matthew 24, Jesus is going to say, if where the where the carcass is, the the vultures are, right? When you see vultures flying around the sky, you know there's something dead or dying laying on the ground. Okay, where the teenage girls are, the boys are. We know that. So when you get teen girls in a youth group, and they could be the white or pure as the driven snow, Christian girls, they're going to attract boys who're just there because there's girls there. And, you know, I think girls of that age like to be around boys, too. You know, we got the double standard in our society. Girls aren't supposed to feel that way, but we know they do. 
So you have a lot of people in teen church and even middle school church that are there just to be there. They're not there because they love Jesus. They're not there because they want to be discipled. They're there because people their same age are there who are potential romantic partners or at the very least friends. It's a hangout. We know there's adults at church who are phonies who they just want to, even deacons at church are like, they own an insurance company or something like that. They are small business people. They're lawyers. They're whatever. And they go to church. They're used car salesmen. They go to church so they can get business and be seen as somebody who's participating in the community, but they don't really believe. I mean, I think you have that tenfold in youth ministry. That's what this so-called youth pastor is dealing with. And as we know, there's no such thing as a youth pastor in Scripture. Because they didn't even have youth. They didn't have adolescence. You, we're creating pastors for adolescence. And adolescence wasn't a concept. I mean, that just seems kind of crazy to me. <clears throat> so it's almost like a war you can't win. Because when you're doing church, the ecclesia, it's the called out ones. And yeah, we know there's tares among the wheat, because the Bible says there's tares among the wheat. But I, as far as what a church is, there's more tares in that youth group than any other wheat field you got in that church. That's just statistics. That's just how it's built. So what are you, what are you going to do there? Can you even do substantial discipleship ministry? I mean, can you do much more than basic evangelism? And that's what youth group has become. Pizza party, then evangelism. Rafting trip, then evangelism. How much can you really teach people? And I'm not saying there's not youth ministers out there teaching doctrine. I'm saying, given the nature of what it is, just the, the market, the supply, whatever you want to call it, whatever you're dealing with, that's the nature. It's going to naturally be like that. And unfortunately... <coughs> youth uh, culture youth ministry culture has progressed because it was invented in the 70s and now it's progressed and those people have grown up in it people my age too have grown up in it as an adults and that's what they think church should be that's why you have churches preaching about movies and Mario and all this garbage and that's why you have youth ministers out there intentionally trying to go get popular kids Tim Samples told me this story. I've talked about him on the show before. Uh, when I was a young kid in the, ministry, in the youth group, and by the way, these, these are not necessarily church members either. The youth group isn't necessarily church members. They could be youths from other churches. When I, was, when I was a young man, I went to the youth group activities at First Baptist Church, and they hired a new youth minister named Tim Samples. He came from some church in Gainesville. And quite frankly, no one liked him. <laughs> When he first got there, he, I mean, he almost got fired. And, but he was just, he was straight-laced and kind of a dork, and that didn't fit in with uh, some of the youth stuff going on. As an adult, when I thought about it and I looked back on it, I'm like, oh, wow, he was really, he was kind of a goofy guy, but he was trying to do the right thing. And I got reconnected with him later in life and started uh, attending a church that he planted, Expedition Church, which I've talked about on this program before. But he eventually left First Baptist, and I'll never forget what he told me about being there. He said when he got there, the leadership told him to find the popular kids and get them to come to the youth ministry events because the popular kids would draw other kids. That was his direction as youth pastor from church leadership. 
And I can also remember that time. One day we showed up for Wednesday night Bible study. And we were instructed by the leaders there, just drive out, because we were 16, 17 years old at the time. We could drive. Drive out and go invite people to church because we're having pizza. Invite them for the pizza at church. And that's what we were supposed to do. (coughs) So we drove around. And... I, went, I remember I went to Zegan Mills' house. He had plans. And sometimes I wonder, what if he'd have come to church with us that day? Because he committed suicide when he was in his 20s. What if he'd have come to church and heard the gospel? I don't know. And then uh, my friend Kevin went to a guy's house named John Baldez. Now, I saw John in church as an adult. Yeah, I know John takes his family to church, is what I'm saying. But he wasn't in church that Wednesday. His sister has a PhD. She writes books in the Christian realm. So I don't know if he went to church back then or not. But I remember Kevin was telling this, he told me the stories. I was like, come on, John, let's go. He's like, no, man, I just kind of want to hang out with my family tonight. Oh, come on, man, come on. And he was like really pressing John to go. And then John's like, no, I just want to hang out here with my family. And Kevin kind of felt bad about cajoling him into coming. when he just wanted to hang out with his family. And I remember at that time thinking like, you know, it's good to invite people to church, but now looking back on it, I'm like, why did we spend 30 minutes inviting people who didn't want to come to church to be there? Why weren't we studying the Bible with kids who did want to be there? And there's a reason for that. Because by and large, and this is a generalization, by and large, youth ministry is about trying to grow a group of people who will get you connected with adults, namely parents, will come to the church and have money and support the church. You can tell me it's about evangelism. I mean, all of this is going to be about evangelism. What, what age group did I mention that we don't share the gospel with? Okay. But when it comes down to it, you're going to find a lot of that in youth ministry. And that's a lost leadership, customer relationship, manager thing. That's my personal experience as a, as, a, as, a, as a youth with it. Maybe it's not yours, but as uh, Al Pacino said in Sin of a Woman, I've been around, you know. So, and I've, I've been around, you know. I'm in seminary. I've been a youth. I've been in church my whole life. I know what it is for the most part. Am I condemning taking youth group trips to paintball? No, go have fun. But you better get it straight. That you shouldn't be using groups of kids, many of whom you know are unregenerate, as lost leaders to get your parent, their parents in from some other church. You better start discipling people. I'm going to tell you, the state of the church today, as exemplified in the stuff they sell at Lifeway in the Christian music industry, shows just how ineffective youth ministry has been at discipling people. Thanks for listening to the Christian Commute. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again tomorrow. As always, God bless. And as always, remember, Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved. Thanks for listening to the Christian Commute. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to sethdunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.